Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alark Russell. I am the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets for over 10 years. I've made dozens of films, shorts, and features as either a producer or a director. And I'm just finishing up my first feature as a writer, director, the alternate. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer, and sometimes casting director with two features under my belt that I've written, directed, and produced and cast. Uh, and I'm a former film critic, former distribution consultant, and oh, fuck. I am a former film critic and a current distribution consultant. Uh, and I used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. But this week, we have writer director of the new film, Come True. His name is Anthony Scott Burns, and he's on the show to talk about how he managed to give himself 60 days to shoot his sci-fi feature with a crew of only five. Anthony talks about his time directing a much uh, larger budget feature film and how that led to him going into a more low budget direction. We also have listener and filmmaker John Beckham on the show to talk about his short pizza people. And we have a special guest, Naomi McDougall-Jones, hero to all, who's on the show to talk about our brand new incubator, Constellation Incubator. So without any more chitter chatter, here is our conversation with Anthony. Well, Anthony, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so we're going to start with our uh, five questions. Okay. Uh, can you just give us the elevator pitch for Come True? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, it's been so many years, the elevator pitch. Uh, a movie about nightmares. Uh, and sort of how they all sort of link us together. And and sort of the how how right Carl Jung was. That's that's really what it is. The horror film about how right I believe Carl Jung is in in terms of how we all are connected. How many days did you shoot? Uh, sixty days. We shot for sixty days. Sixty. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Holy moly. That. And and that that comes from my my want and desire to have as much time as filmmakers whose films I admired had on their films so if you could say what was the rough budget for your 60-day shoot i don't really want to put it out there because i know some people don't want how low it was out there uh but it was low um and so uh maybe your next question is i don't know how many crew members did we have and it was five um <laughs> so so that's how we got the 60 days is is, wow. is we reverse engineered the production to be, we need as much time with the actors. And that comes from, again, this, for me, um, I built up the skill set so that um, my sort of uh, idea of making movies is that it doesn't matter what kind of tech you have and all the rest of that stuff, is if you put Daniel Day-Lewis in front of your, Im your image capture device, you can make a great film because they can, they can emote and, and create your, you know, make your characters real. And so that's where all of the ideas come from and how we made come true is that it doesn't matter the, the infrastructure and all that stuff. It's that it's about getting great performers in front of the camera, so. Oh God, I have like 30 questions to ask, but okay. But the next in the rapid fire template question yeah. is. <laughs> These are the least rapid fire, rapid fire. Um, how long, and I think you might've mentioned this at the beginning of our chat. How long did you spend working on the film from uh, its inception to release? Well, three years, three years, but, but I had made a movie in between. So there's another two years tacked on <laughs> before that. Um, uh, Come True was set to be my first feature film, um, but because it was experimental and because I wanted to do it a certain way and, and with very little infrastructure, um, I was advised to go and make another movie first. <laughs> and I made uh, that movie and I quit that movie in the edit. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Yeah. More questions yeah. are loading up. Yeah. It's stacking. It's stacking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you already answered this next question, but so I'm just going to jump a question. Compared to all of the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? You know, it's weird. Emotionally, I was able to stay pretty zen throughout the entire project project because it was so exciting to be able to paint the picture I wanted to paint. Um, the freedom allowed for my brain to be less 
broken by the process and that freedom really really fed my 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 vehicle and 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 what i mean is that it's a three-year process when you're doing all the editing and the sound and, and the vfx and stuff like that it can really break you and to some degree it did um but it it was very easy so it wasn't it wasn't hard to make this movie even though it was very hard to make this movie if that makes sense um physically and just you know that was the hardest part is is, is waking up and going for you know as many hours as we did for 60 days, first of all, and shooting it. And then on the post end of it, just waking up every day. And, and I'm, I'm the guy who is motivating myself to sit down and edit all the footage. And I don't have an assistant editor and all the rest of that stuff. And then to then go back and insert in every single screen, all the graphics and stuff that I have to go <laughs> Like, it's just, you, you need a lot of like, momentum and the momentum was the freedom to put something out that I was proud of so I, I know you can't talk about the budget too much but uh I can't help but notice your Canadian accent was this a Canadian <laughs> what did I say what did I say that was <laughs> you Canadian? said project um, oh yes, yes but uh project. was this <laughs> was this under the traditional Canadian financing system for film or did you work in other uh creative ways to put the money together so it was a low budget film um and because I'm Canadian we're we have we have a lovely system called Telefilm that is is in place to to help us uh, complete financing and help you know sometimes fully finance projects. Uh, in this case, they came on for I believe it was about a quarter of the, the budget, um, and uh, another quarter of the budget was tax credits for shooting where we shot, and then so then we just needed to come up with the other half of the budget. So two you know one half was was tax credits in Telefilm, the other half was uh, actual. Um, cash financing through people, wonderful people. Um, I don't know if they want to be named. Equity investors though. Yeah, equity investors, but people I had worked with in the past in the commercial sector and and outside of that, who just knew what I was able to do on such a little amount of money. I I can't wait to hear about the story of you developing this movie to be your first feature, then for some reason making another feature. And I I want to hear about why that happened and like why people were encouraging you to make another feature before come true. You know, quite honestly, probably because they didn't believe in the project <laughs> because it, it, it isn't an odd, like if you re- read the original script, it isn't, an, you know, it's not, it's not what you get. I made some shorts that got me into Hollywood and the people in Hollywood have a very different idea and obviously not everybody, I'm not going to blanket statement, but there is a large percentage of people there who have a very definite idea about what a sellable project is. And, you know, for me, I felt that this was a sellable project because I know that there are niche markets that are underserved. Um, you know, it's the, you know, the people who like, you know, the movies I love, those people don't get them enough. So they would prefer because of, they were trying to build me into something, I, you know, the next big thing. And, and, and so I was pushed towards more commercial uh, screenplays. And I, you know, they basically said, you know, make this come true thing once you're established. And so I went off and made it something else. And I tried my best in the screenplay uh, of that movie to, to make something original and then in the edit process uh it was reduced back to what it what it what they originally wanted to do know they wanted to do which was some movie it's available it's called our house it has really really lovely performances from some of the key cast who i adored working with um um but it was supposed to be much darker and original and it was and i liked my cut of the film (laughs) <laughs> and this was representation urging you to make this more commercial film. Uh, that, yeah. I guess that's part A. And then part B is, um, did were you unable to negotiate Final Cut because it was your first feature? Yes. Yeah. Well, no. When it's somebody else's money on that scale, uh, and it was still a low budget, lower budget film, but you know, within the realm of you know, listen, somebody else's three three million dollars, right? Yeah, I wasn't going to get Final Cut. And the financing was all from all over the world and everybody around the world. And I didn't know this was told that the movie was going to be something else than it was, you know? And and so even in the financing that I did not know about, um, it was, you know, this is going to be like scary, like insidious. And that's fine. If that's the handshake you make when you say, I'm going to make this movie, I have no problems making a scary movie like that. But if you say you're going to make something that is more akin to don't look now, (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, uh, and then it gets cut into something more like uh, insidious. That's when the, the arguments start to happen. And listen, no one is 100% wrong because everyone, there was a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Um, but, but I just wasn't willing to do it. I wasn't willing to cut that kind of a film into another kind of film and, and have it be, you know, something that, you know, the actors would not be proud of, et cetera. So did you get pitched this like insidious version of this movie originally? And then you're like, nah, I see it, this no. something else? Or was that just never no, part it of was, it? I, I had taken a screenplay that was sitting at Universal unproduced and I really liked it. And it was written by Nathan Parker who wrote Moon. And it was, it was really, really, it was a lovely draft of something that could be turned into, at that time, this is pre-Stranger Things, uh, when I was working on this, and I thought it's time to bring back that Amblin feel, and we can sort of encode that with modern empathy, if that makes sense, is that you take some, something that people love, and now we start to encode it with a different kind of empathetic viewpoint, which we all have now, uh, you know, 20, 25 years later. Um, and that was the impetus. And so I rewrote it with a friend of mine and because no one's gonna pay anyone to do rewrites. Uh, and so we, we made that movie into something that we were happy with and that's what we shot. Um, but it was in the edit because the performances were so strong from our, our leads. Like we had Thomas Mann from Me, Earl and the Dying Girl in it. And, 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 and the family dynamic was so strong that I think that everybody involved thought this could be not just good, but huge if we, if we put some jump scares and things like that in it, which I was just not, I didn't want to do. I love that. Um, we, I am not going to go into my appreciation for that because I'm getting to my next question because we're on a time crunch. Um, I know. <laughs> for come, for come true. Yeah, talk about come true. <laughs> yeah, come true. Um, we talked to the Nelms brothers recently and they said they, uh, they always, they never gave away days. The days were the most important thing in terms of building a production schedule and building your budget. Um, they would give away equipment rather than days. So yes. can you talk about what you used your 60 days for? Was it rehearsals? Was it doing more takes? Like, how did you use that time? It was about doing takes. It was about doing takes. And I, I love rehearsing in the space with the actors, finding out what they, uh, how they feel about the lines and, and the interactions and where they would do them naturally and how they would think their character would do them in that space. Um, and building sort of sets that are pretty much 360s. And then once we see it going in and, and photographing the best possible angle for that sort of scenario. So I think, which goes back to how things used to be, you know, that's in, at least what, from what I could see, you know, in, when, in all my years of, deep diving laser discs, you know, that, that was the process for so many filmmakers that I admired. And so I wanted to do that, not just because I admired it, but because it makes sense. And so we did the same thing. We would give up almost anything to have that time with the actors. So it, it meant, you know, my co-producer, Nick and I spray painting all the props and building all the props, et cetera, and, and just doing and every, every costume was handpicked at Value Village or, or whatever store we got it at by myself <laughs> because it was necessary because otherwise we would lose those days. So you mentioned that your crew is five people. Talk about what were those five roles that you whittled down to for your crew? So you need great sound. <laughs> you need a focus puller. Um, you need an AD. Uh, you need makeup and hair. And who was it? And then we had our production manager who basically made sure that everyone got fed and, and was everywhere on time. Wait, you didn't have a production designer on this no, film? No, that was me. That was me. Oh my gosh. And, and were you the cinematographer as well as the director? Yes. Oh shit. Wow, oh, so this shit. is how you get it done, I see. Well, it's, <laughs> I, I don't recommend it for everybody. You know, like I said, it, 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 it definitely took a physical toll, you know, a physical and, and probably a mental toll to do and keep track of all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, there was no production designer. <laughs> I wish. Wow. Uh, why this story? Like why do, why to go to these extents uh, for this story? Why, why was it so important to you? Well, it's weird. You know, when you watch the film, you can take it as two, two things. It's just a genre movie or, or it's an art movie. But I, for me, this story is weirdly personal because 
at the end of the day, even though it takes place in a genre space, it's not really about that. Um, and when, what I thought I was writing was something about just the nature of, of where we're living right now and, and sort of, and I know that sounds super weird, but that's what the film is really about is, is I, was I was driven to write this by some unknown force and put this out by some unknown force. And I just, I, I listened to it and allowed it. And, and it's only again, in hindsight that I realized that a lot of filmmakers that I admire do the same thing is, is they just listen to that inner voice. And it's almost like the idea just speaks through you. And, and I really wanted to be a very honest conduit to whatever that was, whether it made sense or not. And then in doing so, you know, I think a lot of people connect to it because it's speaking some sort of weird dream language. <laughs> That's why I, I just wanted to be an honest conduit to whatever it was because it really came out easily when I wrote the screenplay. It was, it was kind of wild. So your movie's about to come out um, through IFC Midnight. Um, talk about the road to get to where you are now with your distribution. Like, like what would you attribute to like this deal happening? Is it because of, you know, a certain film festival that you premiered at or that you played at? Is it because of the connections you had? Like, how did this, how did you get this kind of perception well, for the film? I honestly don't know because I, I sort of stay out of the sort of festival part of it. Anthony, you're already doing so much. Just add another thing on. I don't get it. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Well, if I'm honest, I, I feel like we just stuck to our guns <laughs> and made something that we really felt was quality and, and that we could stand behind. And probably because, you know, Fantasia, which is a lovely festival, we, we, we got such great press out of that. And then we went to, you know, Nightstream and got great, great press out of that and Sitches and got great press out of that. So I think just people enjoying it at the festivals uh, definitely made IFC take notice. It's interesting to know that IFC actually distributed my previous one as well. And they didn't know that there was any issue. And so they were happy to bring me on for, to continue the tradition of, of, of having my films, which is so awesome of them. Um, uh, but, uh, and they had no idea that anything had gone on in the behind the scenes in that film. But yeah, I think, you know, if, if you just work, put a lot of work into something that you believe in, the hope is that people will respond to it because you're making something honest. So just to follow up really quick. So did you have any connections at any of these film festivals or did you just submit blindly or were you? I personally, I personally, no, I didn't actually, my representation booted me when I quit. Wow. All of them, they had to, you know, they can't represent someone who's difficult. And I understand that, you know, there's no hard feelings. Uh, but then now I have representation again because I made come true. Uh, so ha happy times. Uh, yeah, I, I personally did not have any connections, but because my producers are Stephen Hoban and Mark Smith of uh, Copper you know, they have a ripping slice and ginger snaps and Vincenzo Natale is the EP. And obviously that, that does not, not help. And it's great to have them, even when you're going through the process of editing and stuff, to have all those voices helping you craft the strongest version of your film. Uh, so I'm sure, you know, those connections helped. Um, and then Todd Brown, I don't know if you know Todd Brown from XYZ. He uh, is a fellow uh, who has always been a cheerleader of mine because he's a fellow Torontonian and had, had seen my work coming up through just my shorts and stuff. And he's really been a huge supporter. And I'm, I, it doesn't, you know, like I said, it's just making the things you love. And, and then I'm, I'm not excellent at cultivating relationships. <laughs> And, and, and that it, it just comes from me being buried in my work a lot. Uh, and so I don't have a lot of connections and I don't know a lot of people, but, but I, I do think that again, it just comes back to the work. If you're honest and you just keep making the things that you love. I don't think filmmaking is about connections because at, at the end of the day, you know, say you make a movie, it's not good. And you have all these great friends, right? They're not going to push it anywhere. <laughs> you know, like, they're just not going to, even if they love you. Um, so I think Filmmaking is especially now because there's not a lot of money to go around in sales for low budget genre and stuff like that. So it really, it really does have to be something that they're, they think they can make money with, you know, and that there's an audience for So even with all the connections in the world, I don't know that I could get into festivals. So I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. 
I, like I said, I sort of stay out of that. I make the movie and then hope to God someone wants to put it somewhere. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about sustainability. So I'm piecing together a little bit about your career and I may be wrong, but I mean, it's part of the reason why you, you pivoted to new representation is that you are a commercial director in addition to the features? No, I started off as a commercial director because I gave up on making features when I was younger um, because it seemed so out of reach. I, I pivoted away from commercials after a couple of years because I just didn't, I didn't enjoy the feeling of, of, of doing the work I love. Uh, and, and, uh, I don't know, it sounds weird to, you know, privileged, you know, that's, it's a, I didn't like doing that work, but it, it's, 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 it's that I'm somebody who, who can't lie. <laughs> Does that make sense? And so if there's, if someone is asking me for the, you know, a new way to sell cheese whiz, my answer is make something better than cheese whiz. Oh, but cheese whiz is so delicious. You should I, I, <laughs> different products. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like if you're trying to get more people to buy something that is probably not great to begin with, don't, don't ask me to come up with some new inventive way to do it because just come up with something better. It's, it's, just not, it's just not in me. And while people like to have me do it because I could do it on a budget and do it and have it look a certain way, um, but it just wasn't for me. And, and so, no, the, the new representation is just... I think representation is is key in trying to get as many scripts in front of your eyeballs as possible. And so when you make a film and, and you do get representation, um, it's, it's nice to be able to read a lot of scripts in the hopes that you'll come across a good one because that's, there's so few good ones that, that, that you need to read a lot. And so that's what I, and, and it helps with getting talent too. You know, representation is great for that. You know, they can really reach out me on my own, I can't just walk up to somebody and say, hey, you want to be in my movie? So it's, it's great. You can. For... I genuinely don't think you can. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Well, you know, there is this new category we're seeing because of the new film market of, uh, and my producer, Nick and I joke about it. Oh, we can get them. It's like Guy Pierce. We can get him. <laughs> because... Gettable, yes, of course. He's in everything though. You walk up to Guy Pierce. I feel really badly because I love Guy Pierce to death. And I don't know what's going on personally that he's doing so many movies now. It's like Bruce Willis and Nick Cage and Guy Pierce. Like these guys are just in everything. And just to yeah. press a little bit on Liz's question, like, are you um, a full-time filmmaker? Is that all you do to provide for yourself, or do you do other things in order to, you know, pay the bills, well, etc.? Weirdly enough, I, I I survived longer in the past two years composing. Uh, than, than actually making movies. Uh, I, I did a soundtrack for another filmmaker, um, uh, Chris McBride out of Toronto. Uh, he made a really lovely film starring Dylan O'Brien and Michael Monroe called The Education of Frederick F uh, Fitzell. And I did the score for that. And I helped out a little bit on the score for uh, Liam O'Donnell's uh, uh, Skylines. Um, so I sort of have been doing a little bit and licensing my music to projects and things like that. So music has actually been, it started off as a hobby 20 more than 20 years ago and uh and so that's been sort of the thing that's kept me alive so i'm trying to be a filmmaker full-time um but it's definitely hard it's definitely hard to do that uh do i do commercials every once in a while yes but i don't put my name on <laughs> oh, interesting again it's it's a privileged place to be um but it, I, it comes from me being able to deliver things on a budget it's not because i live some amazing life <laughs> Um, we have to jump to final five, right, Ulrich? We have to do we it. We do. Yes, Sorry, we do. Well, shit, okay. let's do it. Uh, all right, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Oh, oh, you mean like the very first? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first film I ever made, oh, I can't, I don't know if I'm remembering it correctly. I would say the first finished, finished film is this something called Electricity. It's just a short and I feel pretty great about it because it's a time capsule where my father jumped in to play some of the, you know, characters in it. And uh, it was, it started me thinking I could do it. Um, and so I really, I, I like it. I like, yeah. I'm, I, I have fond memories of, 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 you know, my, I was making these things on two VHSs, you know, like so it's, <laughs> it's, it's old school. It's fun. So I, I have Listen, I'm still doing the same thing. <laughs> so it hasn't really changed. So it's just different technology. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I, there's so many great pieces of filmmaking advice. Uh, just give me a second. I mean, it's kind of what I said earlier. I don't know who said it to me, but it, 
it, I think just through years of watching commentaries, you realize that, that it's all about your actors. It, it really is. You can make a movie about, like I said, Daniel Day-Lewis having a pop on, on the side of the road and he'll make it in something worth watching. So it really is. Really, really listen to your actors and, and they're really, really, for me, they're key. Maybe not everybody, but for me, they're key. Uh, do you have a goal as a as a storyteller? <laughs> to have a career. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be able to, to survive and do it in, in the modern landscape. Uh, not to just make honest films that people, uh, that some people enjoy and connect with. Um, I, that's really it. And my goal is to, I, I really love doing this. It's super fun to be on set and work with people um, and, to, and to see the things that are in your mind actually come out. So yeah, my goal is to just keep doing this and, and at any cost, I probably will. And if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? You have Asperger's syndrome. You're not a bad person. <laughs> that's, that's my advice to my younger self. Cause I did not know I was, and so I was a very weird kid. So yeah, that's why I'm not great at cultivating relationships is that, that I'm, I'm an out of sight, out of mind person who lives in my world of creating things. And so it, it just so happens that I'm lucky that my obsession is, design filmmaking and music and now i get to make money from that weird obsession some people with asperger's aren't so lucky and their obsession is train sets <laughs> and so they're in big trouble you know i'm just lucky that my dad introduced me to movies when i was very very young and and i was on set with him and so yeah became my obsession it's like a whole separate side conversation and i just want to say for what it's worth like you did list like a bunch of producers representation your relationship with cast and then you then you said like right after that you're bad at cultivating relationships <laughs> so i just think that there's disconnect. well in in you know what i mean like in, in yes yeah <laughs> i just yeah i I probably still just think I'm bad at it because I, it, that's part of having the Asperger's. And our final question is making yeah. movies hard. Yes, it is, but it's absolutely worth it because on the other side, there's no other feeling like it when you've finished making, you guys know it's, it, yes, it's hard, but it's super fun. It's, it's, I, 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 I was a cadet when I was younger because my dad was in the military and his dad and his dad and his dad. And, making movies for me gives you that same feeling of camaraderie of having, you know, obviously you didn't go to war, but you kind of did. <laughs> you didn't have to, you didn't, you're not in that much, but it, I, I sort of, that feeling of camaraderie and, and sort of joy of working together to create something, it's, there's nothing like it, you know, whatever sort of task you're doing, whether it's filmmaking or whatever. And I think that's why people are drawn to it is that it really is when you come out the other side and people have worked together and done something together, it really is, a nice feeling. Uh, sell your wares. Where can people find you, support you? How can they see the film? Uh, on March 12th, they can see the film. Uh, I don't even know what platforms, but probably all of them where you can get them on, on demand. Um, March 12th from IFC in the States and then in Canada, it'll be out on the same date. And then in UK, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Ireland uh, on the 15th on demand. But I mean, you can see it in some theaters. I I feel weird recommending that. <laughs> You're safe. Uh, be safe. Yeah, be safe. Uh, yeah, I I would love for people to be able to see this in the theater one day. Maybe, well, you know, but or it is going to be out in theaters on the 12th. Yeah. <laughs> here from Sarah. Here we go. This is this is. What am I saying here? Okay, opens in, <laughs> opens in select theaters, digital platforms, and VOD on March 12th. And feel free to say something like more, uh, oh, <laughs> 8 billion. Nice. Okay. Uh, Sorry. Uh, I just saw the chat now. <laughs> Budget. Yeah. But thank yes. you, Sarah. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Sarah. I'm terrible at th this part of it. The festival part, this part of selling it. I'm not good at selling it. I can't sell my words. Just if you like the film, tell people about it. It'd be great it, to have as many eyes on it as possible. Not because we want to get rich, but because we want to connect with people. Sweet. Well, thanks so, so much. This has been we fantastic. Did it. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you, you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Beep -bop, beep -bop. So um, what do you remember about Anthony? I, I remember a couple things um, that was fun. I just, that he, that he, it was like pretty amazing that he got the 60 days to shoot his, his feature and that he made that 
like a really important thing uh, to the point where he shot it himself, you know, uh, along with, you know, a crew of four, um, which I, I don't know, man, like, I don't know if I'd want to take on all that stress myself, even if I did have 60 days to do it, I, I would really much rather have a cinematographer with me. Um, but yeah, that was one of the things that really stuck out. What about you? Do you remember what was interesting about Anthony? The only thing I really remember, and Anthony, I started to really like him. <laughs> I thought he was kind of fun and, and charming. Uh, but the thing I remember is that he felt he was unconnected and didn't have a lot of resources. And it was kind of like when we talked to James Lafferty and Stephen Coletti, and they thought they were unconnected and didn't have a lot of resources. And it's this constant reminder that like the grass is always greener, no matter what. You never feel like you have enough. You never feel like you're successful. Um, and that always makes me feel better because I'm, um, you know, I've, uh, I always think that other people have more resources than I do. So it makes me feel better that other people feel horrible all the time too. Well, it was interesting. I mean, like, cause he, yeah, I asked him about Fantasia and how we got into these film festivals and, and whatnot. And he was like, oh no, I don't have any connections. But then he listed like, all these people with hella connections, like the person who like started uh, XYZ and like, right. you know, this fancy executive producer person and this other person. I was like, oh yeah, those people are the ones with the connections, not you. So calling Anthony out a little bit on that one. Um, and he also, he had like a representation in Los Angeles for this first feature. He got fired from them. Now he has other representation. So, I mean, come on. Or he left, yeah. right? Or did he get fired? Oh, they I did. They, they did. I think they dropped him because he left the movie and then they were like, no go. There was a Jack. parting of ways. Yes, exactly. Um, but now he has new representation. He didn't seem to care. So that's oh, all good. There was the other thing he said that I was actually just thinking about today. I forgot that this was him. Anthony said something about how easy the script came to him. And it just kind of like. It was almost like a muse was talking to him or something and just flowed out. Of, he, he phrased it so wonderfully. Um, and I was, I love that. Cause I think if it's, yeah, go into the direction of the least amount of friction, right. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what yeah. he did. And he made his life a little easier telling the story that wanted to come out of him. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, totally. But Liz, uh, I think you have a get shorty for us. I do. I do. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. This week, we have a short from filmmaker and listener, John Beckham. Uh, he's also a consulting client of mine, but that's a separate story. Um, he comes on the show. He's coming on the show to talk about his film, Pizza People. And here is John to talk about his film. Making movies is hard. Hello, this is John Beckham. I'm a filmmaker from Maryland. Thank you for having Pizza People on the Get Shorty segment. So it was November 2019 and a feature documentary I was working on called Basketball County, which is out now on Showtime, shameless plug. Um, that was in post-production and it was at an editor and I wasn't really involved in the day-to-day -day. and that had a bunch of people involved in it and I was itching to do something on my own. I had about 5,000 bucks. I knew a couple of people that would be a great small crew and just really wanted to prove to myself that I could make something cool um, with a small budget in a couple of days. So we were kicking around a bunch of ideas for what we would make. And my brother has a beautiful restaurant. He has a good story and everybody loves pizza. So the original idea was to go shoot a short documentary called in pursuit of the perfect pizza pie, where we go talk to a bunch of people at the restaurant about their favorite pizza and why it's their favorite and toppings and all that. We talk to my brother, we get a bunch of beauty shots of pizza and food prep. We put it in a bowl and we mix it together and we serve it as a pizza documentary. Uh, it took us two days to shoot. Uh, if you can, It's two half days and a full day. So Saturday night, we shot a bunch of clientele and interviewed them at the restaurant. Sunday, we were at the restaurant with Kelly, my brother, and talking to him. And then we also drove around Baltimore and went to some of the places where he gets his ingredients. And then that uh, Monday, we shot a half day where we got a bunch of food prep and beauty shots. After I got all the footage back, though, the interviews with the clientele weren't working. Um, like 50% of them had their kids on their laps because the kids wanted to be on camera. Um, the restaurant was loud, didn't really jive with Kelly's story. Um, it was just turning into this like kitty, weird, unfocused pizza thing. It just wasn't cool. And again, you know, the only thing I wanted to do here was just put something out that was cool that I finished on kind of on my own that I spearheaded. So 
got laser focused. Kelly's my brother, so I have access to you know his pictures of him growing up, and I know his story front and back. So we just got laser focused and turned it into pizza people about Kelly and his obsession with pizza and his arduous journey to opening his restaurant. It's called Paulie G's Hamden in Baltimore. If any of you guys are in Baltimore, go say hi and have a slice. Um, so finished it, sent it out to a few food film, food film festivals and actually won best short at the Seoul International Food Film Festival and made back like 80% of the budget, which was amazing and unexpected. Saranghae, annyeonghaseyo to everybody in South Korea. Um, and this fall, it'll be at the New York Food Film Festival where they have a taste what you see on screen experience where there's a bunch of food docs and you'll get to eat the thing that is featured in that doc. It sounds like the most amazing experience. Um, didn't really expect anything from this. Uh, nothing's really different now. Um, it's on YouTube. Just wanted to make some cool content, kind of prove to myself that, you know, I could spearhead a something and get it done that is good. And uh, I think that's what we did. Um, only thing I would do different really is be a little more focused in pre-production. I, I hear this as a common thing from filmmakers that if they were a little more laser focused and less cavalier in pre-production things could have been better in post-production and that's the case with this um it took a little while to figure out what we had because in post-production because we didn't really realize what we were trying to get in pre so last question was uh if kelly wasn't involved would we still do it and that's that's a no access was everything here um you know kelly really allowed us in there to get what we needed and shoot as much as we needed and he had open arms for us. So thanks, Kelly. Love you, brother. Um, Liz Ulrich, thank you for having me a part of the show. Love it. Um, I'll continue to listen. Be gentle on me. See ya. Ulrich, what did you think about? Are you a pizza person? What did you think about people? Pizza people? I am a pizza person. I also have worked at two different pizza places in my past. Um, I was a round table person and I worked Ooh. at a small place in uh, Berkeley, um, doing everything from making the pizzas to, you know, waiting tables to delivering the pizzas, everything. So I'm definitely pizza all the way. I also love pizza. Um, but yeah, so I guess my, my, main, my main thoughts about the doc were, you know, I, I really liked the close-ups. I thought they were really well done. I thought a lot of the cinematography was really good. Um, I thought the main interview was a really nice setup that they had, uh, you know, inside the pizza place. Uh, I thought there was a nice use of some um, old archival type footage, but I wish there was more. Um, I wish there was some shots of him when he was actually, you know, at the farmer's market. I mean, they went back to the farmer's market and had him like kind of walk through it and, you know, whatever, just be in that space. But it wasn't like when he actually had his, his stand. Um, it'd been fun to see that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I guess like watching this, it's like over 10 minutes long. Like, I'm just wondering, like, did it really need to be 10 minutes? Like, it felt like a little long to me. Um, and there didn't really, like, there was some good, like, sort of, um, like friction and, and story beats early on, like, you know, in the first half, but then the second half, it's just like, oh, it's all great. This is our pizza this is what we do. We're all successful. We're all happy, you know, our pizza's doing well, you know? And so I kind of wonder if there's another version of this movie that's like more like six to seven minutes long that kind of, you know, just is a little tighter and then doesn't go on for so long on the back end. But I don't know. I, I agree with that. I think most people always think content should be shorter and um, usually we're right. <laughs> usually <laughs> content should be shorter. Um, I, I, yeah, so I consulted with John about Pizza People and another documentary that he's working on. And um, and he's a, a wonderful guy and I really like him. And I think the comments that I gave him are, are still true where this, it feels like a very promotional short, promotional mm. for this one guy in this restaurant. You know, there's no real scenes. There's no real conflict. You don't hear from anyone else. Mm. So I had always encouraged him to incorporate the restaurant as part of his rollout and let this be on the restaurant's website or, you know, let it be essentially an, uh, an extended commercial for the restaurant. Cause that's what it, it felt like to me. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I think there could be a version of this film that brings in Polly G or um, you see more scenes of, action rather than talking or you know more mm -hmm. more can happen going more in depth to his character asking him really uncomfortable questions and I think the reason we didn't do that I'm guessing is that um 
I think this is John's brother. And yeah. I think, right. So it puts, when you're making a film about a family member, I think it's difficult to really uh, press their buttons. And also that's probably not this film. I didn't need like a breakdown about pizza and like tears over pepperoni or anything like that. But I do want to get to the core of a character when I watch a documentary and I don't think we got there. So, um, and I wanted to shout out my favorite line that I just think is so fantastic. And it was, they're talking about the yeast and they're saying, um, they're creating life, but then they're killing it to give birth to a pizza, which I just yeah. think is like the best line ever. Um, more of that, more of that, like imagination I would love to see, but certainly the best version of what this is, I think, you know, a promotional piece about one guy making, make, you know, making pizza that whose goal wasn't to do a character piece on his brother. I think this is good. It's good for what it is. Do you know why they didn't interview Polly G? Like why it was just only Ke Kelly? Um, I wonder if, if they just didn't consent to being a part of it. I have no idea. And also it, maybe that was just too big of a project. Maybe it was like the resources were just to be with the brother. I, I think like if it was a dual narrative between Kelly and Polly and it was less about Kelly's journey and more about the, the pizzeria itself. Um, I think that might've been, that might've been more interesting. And then like, yeah. if it was even shorter, you know, like still seven to eight minutes, but with another voice in there and it was more focused on just the building of the pizza and they're kind of their both love of like discovering, you know, pizza on their own and, Polly's journey and Kelly's journey together. And like, maybe that is a more interesting movie, you know? Um, yeah. But, I, but I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I don't know if like really getting super deep into the character over pizza is really the right thing necessarily. I just think that there was a lot that they had in, in the story that, you know, maybe didn't necessarily need to be in there. And then, you know, I, I also love the shots at the end of the movie where they're all biting into pizza and stuff. And I feel like, stuff like that could have throughout might've been more fun, you know, to like, to really, if it is going to be a, just a love letter to pizza, like really make it a love letter to pizza. Like I kind of feel like it's, it's half on this, like, yeah, like you said, like a promotional pizza piece for, for Kelly, really not, not even the pizzeria more just for Kelly. Um, and, and like this love letter to pizza. And I wish it was more of, just a love letter to pizza and less of a promotional piece, like a puff piece, basically. You know, I have a friend who started to build a business that was creating videos for restaurants where they would break down how you like the origin of one dish. And mm -hmm. I flipping loved this, right? If I were to go to Palermo, which is one of my favorite restaurants in, in Las Feliz, and like find out the origin of Pizza Rosa, I would be so happy. And I would feel like that there was like a relationship between me and the restaurant. So if they were to do that, right, to bring in the heart, that could be promotion and food and storytelling in a very specific way that could be commercial to sell more slices for that restaurant too. It's like, you could go more in depth without making Kelly cry. You could go more in depth <laughs> on the brisket pizza. I don't know. Or right, like, right. um, you know, even having like a ratatouille moment where someone describes exactly how they feel when they take a bite, you know, mm, just like something a little bit more atypical. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I can I um, air grievances for one second that has nothing to do with John Beckham? Sure. Last week we promoted Pimples and Nipples <laughs> by Derek Viveros, and I said Derek's going to use Ulrich as the pull quote. Uh, you know, hear me out, and he did. He oh really? Did, Ulrich. <laughs> yeah, did he, he used really? you as the pull quote after <laughs> all of the love I gave you. <laughs> Where did he um, put it? Is on his website? On Instagram. Uh, I troll oh. everyone after these shows. Oh my God. Um, so wow. Ulrich yet again, two for two. You know, I don't think John Beckham's going to use my pull quote, even though I adore him. And I think this short <laughs> is really good. Um, I'm just waiting for um, Kyle freaking Kenyon to come around. Tag me on Twitter with pull quote. Where, where did he put it on Instagram? I want to read this. Thing. I think uh, it's, um, he quotes you as saying, it's like John Waters and kids in the hall oh. had a baby. Oh yeah, look. <laughs> he did do it. So <laughs> funny. 
Oh man, but yeah, but you know, I will say Kyle Canyon didn't put my name on the on the pull quote. Whatever, we all know it was you. Okay, you okay. Said. Well, Derek did put my name, so thank you, Derek. That's very, that's very sweet. I really love. I want more movies like Pimples and Nipples. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really fun, and I mean, I, I kind of, um, I like the reaction that it's gotten, at least a little bit that I've seen. Like, I think people are are digging it, you know, are into it. And I, I haven't seen any comments saying like, oh God, this is disgusting. <laughs> Although I, I had one episode once uh, where we, we talked about some stuff that was like less, it was more personal. And then someone was like, that shouldn't be on a podcast about filmmaking. That should be, it shouldn't be included. But it was part of the filmmakers, Ooh. the guest story. And I'm like, ah, oh, well, that's stupid. Whoever said that. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, I think we should move on to our next point, which is what? We have a soap dish this week, Alric. Soap dish. I'm Lori Craven, and I'm an actress. An actress? Really? How nice for you. I'm Betsy Faye Sharon, and I'm a bitch. All right, so this is Soap Dish. And for those of you who don't remember, Soap Dish is this, like, industry, buzzy, thingy segment that we used to do that we don't really do very often. But today we have a very special guest, Naomi McDougal Jones of the show. Welcome back, Naomi. Thanks so much for having me back. So you probably recognize that name because Liz mentions Naomi almost every episode <laughs> um, in some way or another, which is wonderful. Um, but the thing that she's here today is to talk about this brand new incubator that they just launched together last week. So Naomi, what is this thing? Please tell us. Great, I'm gonna give you our super slick log line here. So the Constellation Incubator, is a program that's going to bring together up to 36 feature filmmaking teams to participate in an eight-week incubator designed to scale innovation within the independent film industry and apply design thinking to reimagine a more equitable and sustainable ecosystem from development to film finance to production to marketing and distribution. So the big question I have as someone who just heard that, you know, for the very first time and is looking at this on Film Freeway, is is, is there going to be any input from people in the film finance community? Because I feel like in order for this new structure to work, like it can't just be us filmmakers all super excited being like, well, yeah, let's do this thing. But like, or how are you bringing that aspect into it? Well, our um, our team, and it's Liz and I, and then our two co-founders, Abini Bloodworth and Angela Harmon. So we are we have the privilege to be trained in this coming month by um, one of the leading design thinking teachers in the whole country. Design thinking is an actual discipline. And um, the way it works is that you're solving for an audience. You're solving for somebody. So in each of the different disciplines, we'll be solving for different people. But the point is to solve for the people who actually are going to use it, not listening to experts who have ideas that may or may not be true, but like really to ask the people who are going to be using their things. So for instance, with distribution, we need to solve for film viewers. <laughs> so all of our attention is going to be focused on getting information and learning from them and then designing backwards into the solution. Same thing with finance. Now, I think we might be thinking outside of traditional film investors. Um, hopefully we get some cool big new ideas, but we'll definitely be solving for the people who have the money that we need. And just to jump in here, you know, Naomi um, so eloquently described our, our slick log line. Um, we say it's an eight week intensive and we're breaking up those weeks into those subject matters that she referenced as well. So we're gonna be filmmaking teams in a room talking about about it. Uh, just, I'm just trying to like illustrate the practicality of what they're going through. You're applying to be part of a brainstorming session with other filmmakers of your ilk who are interested in radical new innovative ideas in this industry and want to apply those ideas on their feature projects. So we're looking for filmmaking teams that have a film that they're going to that they're willing and excited to apply new ideas regarding financing, production, distribution, all of these things to that project. I feel like I combined three things into one mishmash sentence, but the point is, is there's a practical application and we're looking for filmmaking teams who want to theorize as well as apply. To build on what Liz is saying, it's not like we're going to be prescriptive about it. It's not like we're going to design one system that then we say like, you have to use this system. We're going to have 10 new models for finance. We're going to have 10 new models for distribution. We're going to have 10 new models for production. 
that's why it's called constellation incubator because the participants will by the end have a constellation of new possibilities that they can piece together for their own projects. I have a lot of questions, but I think to, <laughs> to, to go back into like the mind of someone looking on film freeway, like what are you looking for in these teams? Like, do they need to have a film that's already like produced in order to be a part of this? Or do they need to have a project they're working on? Or can they just be a filmmaker who maybe just finished a project and is like, you know, just trying to figure out how to make their next movie and they want to be involved in working with you to figure this out? So I think there's some flexibility here, um, but I think our ideal candidate is a team that is sort of just, there's a team of like two to three people, but they're just at the baby stage of getting the film off the ground. So hopefully maybe there's a script, um, but because but they have, but no, the film isn't made. Ideally, it's not even financed actually, because we're really looking for people who are interested, as Liz said, in radically revolutionizing the whole ecosystem and the whole process. So we're looking for baby projects to which these ideas can be applied as that they then move forward. And it's listed as a screenwriting contest, which I just want to say was only because the format of the application fits an incubator best, but we're not asking for screenplays when we're asking for applications. We're just actually asking for the answer to like four paragraph response essay questions. Um, there's no word limit and we love if you want to be ambitious about it. And um, a PDF of the bios of the teammates that you have attached to your project. So it's really a light lift, but what we are looking for is we're going to be um, uh, intensely evaluating the answers to these questions, because the goal is to find filmmakers who are forward thinking, not just filmmakers who want to get a project off the ground, but actually want to contribute to a more sustainable ecosystem, um, which is really, really exciting. And, and that's the part that I think we're all looking forward to the most is like, how can we combine our forces to make this world a better place? Totally. And another really exciting piece of this is that if you apply at all, whether or not you're selected, we're going to give you access throughout the process to the learnings of the incubator. Um, because part of the goal here, we're not looking to anoint a new class of filmmakers in, in the way that many labs do. We're, what we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to create a knowledge base and new ideas that then all filmmakers can go out and have access to and build upon an experiment from, this is the incubator for a totally new uh, indie film ecosystem. Are you guys going to make the findings public when it's done? Or is this going to be only for people who either was in the incubator or, or who's applied to be in the incubator? I don't think we've completely decided that. I, 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 my preference would be to make the findings public, but I think if you apply, you'll get access to like more stuff probably. Right. Both Naomi and I have a pretty um, strong track record of transparency in this industry and encouraging and advocating for transparency of this crazy black box of the entertainment industry. So whatever we do, the goal is to educate and inform, just like Naomi was saying. And, you know, something that we were hoping to do, Ulrich, um, which I'm going to put you on the spot here, is somehow in any way incorporate this show, Making Movies is Hard, to help give people updates and takeaways about what we're learning and how they can apply what we're learning, learning to their own projects. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, we already talked about it once before, so I feel like we're already <laughs> kind of in the groove um, here. Uh, go, going back to that mindset of like, you know, should I apply? Should I not apply? Um, are you looking for any certain type of filmmakers? Like, do, do they have to be certain genres that they're focused on? Or are you kind of open to any genre, any filmmaker, any background? Like, what are, you, what are you looking for there? I think we are looking for the broadest diversity in our cohort across every vein uh, in terms of identity and background, certainly, but also in terms of jobs. So the filmmaking teams that are applying don't just have to be... Um, writer, directors, producers. Like if you want to apply with a director and a DP or a producer and a hair and makeup artist, like that's awesome. We want more ideas about coming from different levels of, of film production um, and geographic diversity, age diversity, uh, certainly genre diversity. We're looking for at narratives and documentaries. Um, I think the only limitations are you have to be US based and working on a a U.S. project um, for the reason that 
we can only solve one ecosystem at a time. And the U.S. ecosystem functions quite differently than in other countries. And just reinforcing, this is a feature length project. And we're not going to be... I don't think we're going to be script about how you define feature because that itself is something worth examining. What is a feature length film? But it, but if you see the film as a feature length film, please go ahead and apply for 25 bucks. Like what do you get if you are selected? Like, I mean, is it really just the experience of being a creator in this or is there some other kind of takeaway that, you know, the people who are going to be in this incubator get, I mean, I'm just curious, like what else comes with being a part of this? We're not going to finance your movie, if that's what you're asking, but I think you get this unbelievable experience to be part of this radical revolutionary process with 36 other filmmaking teams. You also get community out of that, which I think is something so rare um, as filmmakers, we tend to be sort of slogging it out on our own projects, but to have 36 teams that are then after the incubator going to go out into the world and, and be doing this experiment, hopefully that community will continue and to gain the learnings of the, of the process. You get education too. I mean, there it's an eight week intensive. We're bringing in experts from other industries. We're talking about different financing structures, different ways to break down your day. We're going to talk about how you do break down a script. And is that the best way, the way we've been doing it for hundred years, is that the best way to do it going forward? So it is a little bit like a course to a degree. It's a course you participate in. It's a course that you contribute to. And for $25, it's the most economic course that for eight weeks of your time that I've ever um, been privy to. And to be clear, there's no additional cost. If you're selected, there's no additional cost to participate. So uh, in the vein of transparency, where is that $25 application fee going? Like, is it going to like help fund this in some way? Like, how are you guys going to spend that money? It will partly go to covering um, some costs, but it will mostly go to the cost of people reading applications. It will not go to paying for the program, which, and that's why our application fees are so low because I think so many programs do fund themselves off filmmakers application fees. And I don't agree with that because filmmakers have no money. So we try, we kept it the lowest cost we could to just cover the cost of, of reviewing the applications. And that's part of the ethos of the whole program is that everyone that we'll be working with their time has value. So we're not going to exploit the people who are reading these applications and evaluating submissions, nor do we want to exploit the artistic labor of those participating in the program. The whole goal is to create um, a system of making films where people's time is truly valued. Just, I'm curious. Now, this is just me because I've never ran a film festival or any kind of thing at all like this. Um, but like, you're not reading every application yourselves only. You're also hiring teams of people to read applications along with you? Well, that's going to depend how many applications we get. <laughs> it's, okay. it's, a, it's a scalability thing. So if you get like thousands of, of applications, then you're going to hire people to help uh, weed yeah. through with you. Okay. I, I mean, at least as an initial pass, I think one of us, at least one of the founders would read every application. Ultimately, like I, I know your goal is to, you know, change the way that the industry works and to reshape like how films are made distributed, um, you know, funded everything, but like, obviously that can't be done in one program. So I'm just curious, like, what is your ultimate goal through this first uh, run of the incubator? For me, it's to generate a lot of ideas backed by information that can then be taken out and experimented and tested on. No, we're not going to guess right. Are we going to guess right are some of the answers we guess going to write, be right? I think so. We're not going to come up with a whole new ecosystem, but the idea is to seed innovation that then these filmmakers and those listening can come, can go uh, build upon. And I think part of this is to start a new generation. Like, like Naomi said, we're not anointing a new class. This isn't about like us deciding what stories should be told, but it's specifically how do we tell those stories and how do we value all members of the crew? How do we not overwork members of the crew? How do we, um, I mean, we could get into it, but what I'm trying to impart is of these 36 filmmaking teams, they're going to take away something from the experience and apply it to their projects. And that's going to be passed on and spread from project to project. And then, um, 
it's it may not revolutionize uh, an entire system overnight, but what we're banking on is that um, we're planting a seed and we're watching it grow right now. And and also planting the seed just in terms of a shift in mindset because we all have sort of this trauma <laughs> that we've we've carried if we've spent any time in this industry around like, well, you just have to do it this way and you have to be willing to put up with this much and you have to sacrifice this. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, I think there are better, kinder, more humane, uh, just better ways of doing this. And so I think to to bring people in and ask them those questions, like, why are we doing this? Like um, uh, one of our co-founders, Abini, who actually comes more from the nonprofit social justice space, she, and, and, and has been sort of learning about the industry with us. She, she's like, what the hell is a PA? Like, what is this job? How does this make any sense? What is going on? This is exploitative. And then she was like, what are spec scripts? This thing, people are writing spec, like scripts for free. That's just free labor. Like, what is this? So I, so I feel like <laughs> that's part of it is trying to question and re-examine everything that we just assume has to be true about this process. And also, I mean, Liz and I both come from, focus a lot on distribution and our films aren't making money. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a Stephen Follows study we cite in our press release that like 3%, he calculates that 3% of the films that are re- released theatrically, of indie films that are released theatrically, which is like already a, an elite group make money. So 3% of the elite are making money, which means like, then it's not a business right now. We have a slot machine. So there has to be like, <laughs> but we're making products that people want. So there's, there, the system is broken, but there has to be a solution to it. So I have two more questions. One is like, let's say I go through the incubator. I've got the film. And then like, you know, we're on the other side of this thing. We've got all these new ideas, these new things. Like, are you going to, are you looking to support the filmmakers who go through the program as they try out these new ways of doing, of making films? And and, and in what ways are you looking to support them? I think the answer that will partly arise out of the process and what, what the community feels will be helpful. But I, my hope would be that we'd have a community of support going forward between the participants and also some kind of ongoing documentation process again because as they go out and try these things we need to know well what worked what didn't work so that again this can be an iterative process for everyone and then the last question okay i'm this person i'm at my computer i'm at film freeway i'm loving everything i'm reading i'm super excited but i'm just not sure if it's really worth my 25 bucks tell me why it is i say we are very charming and very smart and we have (laughs) two features under our belt and 25 dollars is two and a half Chipotle meals. And I would say you can forego, cause I base everything after Chipotle cash. <laughs> um, you can forego two and a half Chipotle meals for the chance um, to be a part of this. And what I wanna acknowledge, because I think this is important. I ran a fellowship at Sundance and it was a Sundance fellowship. We had no application fee, just FYI, and no one applied. And I looked at every single application and read it through and fought like hell for the filmmakers to get a chance and get in from the eyes of Sundance upper level staff. So I just wanted, I want everyone to know that their application and their money is in good hands, but also that like, we're looking at every single piece of material. And if it's a program based off of avoiding exploitation, you bet your ass, we're gonna take every single dollar that comes into this program seriously. Yeah, and I would just say everybody who's participated in it knows that the independent film ecosystem is completely fucked. (laughs) Can I say that on your podcast? Um, I mean, just start to finish. Like there's nothing that's functioning particularly well about it right now. And COVID has made all of that worse from financing to production to distribution. So it's not like we have other great options. Like, it's not like you can be like, well, I don't know. I think I'll just go like take advantage of the system that exists. Like the system that exists, it doesn't make any sense and it's broken. So this is a chance to be part of trying to build something else. And I, as an indie filmmaker, there is nothing that makes me more excited than thinking about a better way to make films. Well, I'm sold. You have my $25. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks, Alric. Well, thank you so much, Naomi, for coming on the show. Um, now, this is plug time. Where should people go if they want to, you know, learn more about the incubator or apply? Well, if you 
search on Film Freeway Constellation Incubator. We're right there. Or you can go to our website, which is avalonstory.com. So please apply to Constellation Incubator and Film Freeway. We're not going to do You've Got Mail this week, but if you would like to write a YouTube comment, head on over to our YouTube page. Now at 207 subscribers, and please leave a comment and we'll read it on the show. You can support the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and give whatever you can. Thank you in advance for anything you want to contribute. If you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion, you can do so at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave a review on iTunes, any of the places you leave reviews for podcasts. Pause. We haven't had a review for like two months, and I check every day. And I would, I do. And I love seeing iTunes reviews. So um, I just would love if anyone had an inkling and they just thought, oh, Liz and Ulrich don't care. We do. It would be wonderful if you would leave a review for us on iTunes. Uh, And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And always, thanks for listening. And thanks to Anthony Scott Burns and Sarah Sampson for making this episode possible. Thank you so much. Um, As for Liz and I, Liz, where can you be found? I'm at Liz Manischel on Twitter and Liz Manischel Film on Instagram. And I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram as well for Ulrich B. You can also check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com where you can find the links to the things we talked about on this episode, including the link to to subscribe or not subscribe, the link to sign up for the Constellation Incubator, which is very exciting. I will hopefully be submitting a project to that. Um, and then, yeah, thanks to me for editing. Um, <laughs> this is finally my week to edit. And I ha- I thought I was like, oh man, I have so much time. I'll edit this way in advance. I have not started yet, but I will. Um, and yeah, thanks everyone to listening and we'll talk to you guys next week. Today, we have a very special guest, Naomi. Naomi. <laughs> Sorry. Very special guest. Um, Okay, I'm stopping.